Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. So good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Arvid Costa of WeGroup. Arvid, how are you doing, sir? Are you well? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, you're actually in the office today, aren't you? We were just discussing. You're, you're sort of back at it. We, we are indeed, and it feels rather strange. I mean, we only allow a couple of people a day to be present here, but... Uh, well, a different space is definitely very motivational for everybody, I guess. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's. That, I think that was the thing. I was quite jealous. I was like, well, what's it like to be with other humans? That must be really, really yeah. nice. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so what would be nice to start on is like, um, can you just give us a, a really short introduction to the WE Group and um, for the guys out there that might not know? Of course, of course. So uh, WeGroup is a, a Belgian insurtech startup that helps uh, insurance providers with increasing efficiency, mainly in their uh, distribution process, uh, and also helps them to make a better connection with their growing group of digital customers. So we are mainly focusing towards uh, intermediaries, uh, such as traditional brokers, agents, as well as MGAs, uh, and what we call third-party insurance distributors. For example, if a car dealer wants to sell uh, an insurance product or, or a real estate broker, for example, uh, they can do it via our platform. Um, so uh, that's, in a nutshell, what we are doing today. Oh, awesome, awesome. No, thank you for that. That is the most succinct um, introduction we've done, which is, uh, and, and I mean that as a massive compliment. Uh, yeah. Someone you. once said to me, if it's something takes too long to kind of explain, then it's, um, you, you haven't got it right yet. So that is true. Uh, that is that's, true. Yeah, that's a well honed pitch. That That's probably a result of all the investment rounds you've had to go through, right? That is, that is true. We had to talk to a lot of investors in the past few uh, years. Uh, as well as like being on stages, you know, we actually, we group participated in tons of competitions because people always tell me like, oh, it looks like you guys win like everything there is to win. But the reality is that uh, we win about 10%, but just we, we subscribe, we compete in so many competitions that it feels like we're winning something every week. So we did literally like thousands of pitches, I guess, over the past uh, three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, the kind of prizes and the competitions piece, because obviously, a lot of the time there's money attached and um you know it's all good pr um but i do sit there and like i'm genuinely in, in awe because between the kind of fundraising like you know investment kind of uh, pitches you need to do and the kind of competition pitches i'm, I'm like when did these guys get to do the work you know <laughs> It's a, that's a very good question indeed. Yeah, but I do think that when you uh, take the ROI, for example, of, of award competitions, pitchings, uh, conferences, things like that, for us, it's been very big, right? Because we needed to start off with, uh, for example, business development towards insurance carriers and whatnot. 
And uh, well, these 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 companies they traditionally work with other companies that they trust, right? So uh, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, if you're a new startup, a new kid on the block, it's very hard to get into that industry, especially an industry as conservative as insurance, right? Cool. Uh, and like the PR that these awards or the, these competitions generate, it's simply what we needed to actually give the feeling like, all right, these guys they're really big. You know, I actually. Um, I read back in the day when Google started, I don't know if it's actually true, but I love the story that uh, they simply rented one little office space, but they called it a uh, Google office and then the address to be or something like that, just to give the feeling that they had like two or three blocks of like Google buildings, um, <laughs> which, which made them uh, feel like a lot bigger. Right. So that's basically, I think what a lot of startups need to do. It's uh, it's a little bit yeah. of fake until you make it, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think that's the case and definitely with insurance i mean it is very conservative i think when when i started my business um seven years ago um it was hugely important to us to have an office like in in the square mile in london because you know we legitimately had some people go well where is your office and and it was a big factor as to whether we were serious insurance people or not so me and my uh, business partner time richard ended up having this like hideous windowless basement <laughs> office just because it was in the right area and um yeah i it's i mean i'm very glad that the world has changed with that perspective but um, but no, i think i think the competitions are important because it, it's a stamp of quality right it's other professional people have looked at your business and said this is a good business this is a good idea this is a good proposition exactly and it just i mean Everything you do as a, as a startup, as an entrepreneur, as a salesperson, you know, everything is pitching, right? So it's very important that you that you get it right, you know, that you that you get the art of, of, of delivering a good pitch, whether it is a sales pitch or a pitch to an investor or whatnot, uh, that you get it right. So uh, mm -hmm. I think these kind of competitions, they're they're just the best way to learn everything, right? First of all, well, you are forced to constantly think of like how am I going to say this and uh, typically you have like three minutes or five minutes or whatnot so uh, you don't have a lot of time uh, but secondly you also learn a lot from the other startups that you that you see over there uh, we we the, the the competitions that I like most were the ones where it was only for insurtechs or for fintechs because there we we learn to know okay how are these other great uh, startups or scale-ups or whatnot doing it um, so yeah it's 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 been a great learning school for us and obviously today I'm not I'm not pitching it as uh, as much as I used to do it uh, back in the day right well obviously competitions due to Corona got a little bit of of a of a, of a change right yeah. uh, but um, yeah, I mean, in the in the early days of a startup, you know, that would be if somebody always asks me, like, what is the main advice that you would give like new startup founders or, or, or uh, new entrepreneurs? That's definitely one of the things that I always take away, like type. To, try to talk uh, to as much people as you can about your ID and preferably, well, on a stage, right? Because then you get heard by way more people. So uh, yeah. yeah, it works, yeah. simple works. Yeah, and, and you can't beat, I mean, I think that's, I think it's a hugely important point. You can't beat that sort of direct interaction with people because I think when you, you pitch your business, um, and I, I, you know, I find this all the time, I might pitch what I do and I, you know, my specialize, I specialize in insurance in the insure tech market, senior level, I think I've got my pitch nailed, but then someone asks you a question mm -hmm. and that you haven't thought that question. And actually you realize, hang on, the response to that is part of the pitch as well. But I haven't included that because different audiences have different values and, and different kind of concerns. So you have to adapt that pitch. So 
yeah, it's a skill that I think particularly, I mean, I know you've got a sales background, but mm-hmm. people coming in without that kind of sales background, it's a hugely important skill to learn for an entrepreneur. I think. That, exactly. That, that is exactly true. And I, I do remember that uh, back in the, I think it was 2018 or something like that at DIA Munich, which is like one of the major uh, uh, insurtech uh, uh, conferences, I would say. Uh, we, uh, I, I, I will probably never forget this moment because at some point somebody came to me and he said, well, I actually didn't like the platform at all. Like the technology that you that you were uh, presenting on stage, it felt not really right. You know, it felt like you were were doing a lot of things and losing focus, this and that. Um, however, uh, the way how you presented it actually got me interested. And because I, I I felt that you guys were on the right track, I wanted to come here to tell you that I didn't like the proposition, right? So I was like, okay, sure. So uh, yeah, is there anything that you would advise us? You know, we started a conversation. Uh, well, back now, so we're, we're two years later and they are one of our biggest clients. So uh, really? yeah, it, it, we, we just kept in contact and it, it went really well actually after that. So uh, yeah, just to give you an idea of what I get out of it apart from the awards right so uh, yes yeah. I, I couldn't help but thinking when you were saying that i, I did this uh, i did a talk on um, talent attraction for a um, i'm based in brighton and there's a really good digital community here and they had a digital talent conference and um and i did this very brief talk five minutes or so and um and a person came up afterwards who went i hate people who work in recruitment <laughs> And he was essentially going, he went, but you might have changed my mind. And then we had this like really funny conversation. And it was just basically, he was ranting about all these things he didn't like about it. Um, and, and I, you know, what was nice is that I'd kind of already done the pitch of myself. So therefore it was just about kind of overcoming those challenges. But mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it really made me laugh. Is He's opening gambit. I hate recruitment. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, that, fine. That, that is actually interesting because obviously it doesn't, it doesn't happen a lot, but the moment that somebody would tell you that or would tell me like your, your proposition, it's not interesting, you know, it's not something that I like. At that moment, you cool down because you feel like, okay, there is no more pressure because I'm not yeah. going to sell to this guy anyway. Yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah. we can as well have like an, an open, friendly, at the bar conversation type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and usually that is like when you, and it's, it's this, I always tell it to our salespeople, you know, when you lose that pressure, that's really the moment where the magic and sales happen. Like I always tell our salespeople, if you go out on the road, well, or nowadays uh, digital, obviously not literally on the road, uh, unfortunately, uh, but um I always say, like, imagine that the client that you were talking to, that he already bought the product, right? The only thing that you are going to do is actually explain to him or her what he or she bought. And that it's 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 an, a whole different way of, like, looking at how to drive your sales process. Mm-hmm. And that really, well, I'm not going to say that that is the the, the main reason why our sales are successful today. But it, it helps. It definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good strategy. That's a good strategy. So I wanted to talk about your, your background very briefly, just mm-hmm. on the premise of, you know, uh, do you think you need to come from the insurance background to be successful in the insure tech market? Or, or yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll make, it, make it simple. Let's, let's start with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the answer is dual. Uh, because if you look at my background, I did work in insurance before. However, I had 
I started working in insurance as an insurance agent back when I was in university. And my main driver was obviously not because I was so passionate about the insurance industry, right? I, uh, I just wanted to make some money like every other student does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, I started to get interested and I, I learned about the industry and things like that. But at the moment where I decided that if I look back to the moment where I decided to found WeGroup, for example, if I look back to that moment, I realized that I... I knew nothing, you know, I had no idea what insurance was really about, how the processes on, because I was on the distribution side. So I worked with brokers and agents, but I had no idea, for example, how the processes work inside an insurance carriers company in the company, for example, or, or uh, how their uh, PNL looks like, or how, uh, uh, even if how they make a profit rather. So um, I did come from insurance, but to be honest, my, my, my knowledge about insurance uh, was not that big. So, the first part of my answer would be no, it's definitely not necessary to find an insure tech. Um, however, I do feel now that as we have became a more professional organization, we, we've grown in three years from three people in a basement to uh, towards almost 40 people. So uh, ra- rather a, a fast growth. Um, and I do feel now that like the, the seniority of some people, that that is what we really need. So we, we came to the point where we said, okay, if we really want to uh, uh, cross the chasm or, or, or cross the gap rather, uh, then we need some people who really know how these companies work inside, like in depth, who have experience uh, for years in insurance. But that's definitely not something you need in the beginning. But along the line, you will probably realize, okay, I want those kind of people around me rather. It could be as an advisor. It could be as an employee. Uh, it, it does really matter but you need that experience somewhere on board mm, I, I completely agree I mean it's it's a question I've started like asked a few people because I think it's um I think it's interesting and I, and I think I think my conclusion lately has just been if you don't have it at some point you're going to need it um, whether that be in sales and distribution or networking or as an advisor to kind of stress test your your kind of essentially your hypothesis you know like it's essentially you've got to kind of understand whether it's going to going to work for you um because mm-hmm. there's there's a few out there that have kind of worried me because the people have gone down this track of saying um and i might be a bit unfair because i think this is someone's slogan but like the insurance is broken and i'm like i don't think it's broken um i just think it can be better um exactly. i don't know do you think it's broken <laughs> well no definitely i don't i definitely don't think that it's broken and i think that uh, uh, catchphrases or one-liners like this are probably present in any industry right i mean i have, sure. I have friends working in in logistics i have friends working in banking you know everything is broken that's basically <laughs> what, I, what i always hear uh, but can you improve obviously we can improve uh, that is well that's obviously why we are doing what we are doing right uh we when we started our business we mainly aimed at uh well actually we started off as a b2c company so uh um, we we looked at how because we wanted to do it better right we 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 saw some examples you had lemonades back then you had french insurance in germany back then so those were like the the the, the big early stage or early uh, 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 vanguard i would say of like the 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 insurtech scene right before even before it was called insurtech um, and back then we really wanted to change because that was also what I was thinking. Like I was working in, inside the insurance industry and I always said like, okay, we can do it so much better, you know, and everything needs to change and we need to, you know, raise our arms and stand on the barricade for like the, the normal people who want uh, reasonable and transparent insurance and whatnot, you know, like all those catchphrases were like the ones that we used. But along the line, 
you learn that uh, obviously these insurance companies there they're also trying to do the best they can right and they want to make happy customers and deliver good user experiences as well yet they're not always able to do so because they have legacy systems and because they have processes in place uh, which have been there for over 10 or 20 or even well sometimes even 100 years for some insurance uh, carriers obviously and change management is very challenging and things like that so obviously it's not easy and that's the point where we as back then still a b2c company we realized that if you really want to make this difference, if you really want to improve, it's not worth like drawing arms and, and go to war against these carriers. We actually need to, we need to help them. You know, our technology can make sure that they can improve their services, their business, their PL, whatnot, uh, in a way that really makes a difference. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, to, to come back to your question, it's definitely not broken, but it can be improved. And that is what we are trying to achieve over here. Yeah, and I think I think exactly your your business and the model is exactly kind of where i think it it is broken like some of the infrastructure is broken but exactly. you know if you look at you if you take insurance as a i don't know let's say it's like a it's like a it's like a city well mm-hmm. over time that that infrastructure is not fit for purpose you know of <laughs> if you've course, ever been, yeah. if you've ever been to london the tube is over 100 years old it's yes. not the best tube in the world right? <laughs> there are there are better underground systems than our system because it's over, it's too old now and, and, I, and i think that's the perfect analogy i think you know where the successes appear to be for me and where the real wins are it's just simply about the infrastructure the kind of concept of insurance is and and, and the kind of that structure is absolutely robust and, and it's you know it's exactly the right structure and um you know I, i've been on a bit of a mission um lately of the kind of like insurance as a social good um and, and i can't take credit for that there's been you know uh i think nigel walsh, walsh has been saying that yeah, he wants people to love insurance again and then i've been speaking to people about sort of sustainability initiatives and you know mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of reinvigorated me as like insurance as a social good you know for for business and people and i think that's um i think it's important to remember but um I, I wanted to pick up on your kind of pivot from b2c to b2b mm-hmm. um when did that happen in your journey like how early on and and kind of yeah what what was the key sort of reason did it did it just get too difficult did you just see there's a bigger opportunity what sort of happened to make that really happen quite quickly for you Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We um, well, we started off in 2017, indeed, as a B2C company, and the the main idea back then was like to be some sort of a, a, a lemonade in Europe, right? So, so that was basically the idea. We we were thinking peer to peer, and that is a, a model that we that we went towards. You know that that I feel. I felt personally drawn to like that kind of model, you know? So I had, to, I was like, okay, this is really like the big idea. That's, that's what we need to do, you know? But along the line, uh, we, we realized that first of all, a B2C is very uh, capital driven. So you obviously need uh, quite a big bag of cash to actually uh, do the marketing effort to actually buy your way into the market very early on. So that was, well, the first real challenge that we were facing where we thought, okay, this actually might not be as easy well as easy it's not not that we thought that it would be easy but still Mm -hmm. uh, way more challenging than than initially expected secondly is also the fact that uh well in the very beginning i always said okay let's make insurance sexy again that's basically what i said it it, uh, aligns a little bit to what you said that nigel uh, sometimes says however um well at some point you realize that insurance probably never was sexy so (laughs) that is uh, that is that is simply a different kind of thing you know and we also realized that because we were like fully digital we wanted to be uh um 
a fully digital carrier. Well, uh, in the beginning, we were not a, not a carrier. That was not the idea. We started off as being a broker ourselves. We wanted to be fully digital. And obviously, the first clients as a company that you make are, uh, well, your friends and your family and the, the people around you. You know, that's where you where you start. And I do remember that one of my close friends, he actually had a claim and he called me and I was like, yeah, sure. We have built actually a, a link online where you can like uh, file your claim and tell us everything that happens via our platform, which we called Louise, which is now our platform for other intermediaries. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, OK, just have a conversation with Louise. And he was like, yeah, dude, but I'm calling you now. Like, can't you just register my claim and I went yeah but we're very digital you know that's the that's the ID so they were really not ready as the market was not ready even our close friends who would probably do anything because they bought it let's be honest I mean they 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 probably didn't have high hopes you know I I would bet that most of them still had another insurance at another company as well but <laughs> just did it to do us a favor right and, and yeah. I was like if we even can't convince these people to like go through the digital flows as we expected then what are we trying to do with people that we don't know, let alone people that might have a, a bad experience with it, with insurance in the past, right? So this will be really, really difficult. And we were a little bit like, um, yeah, thinking over like, how can we change this? How can we do it? And I, Actually, almost as by a miracle at the same point, uh, some insurance brokers, major insurance brokers uh, in the Belgian market, they actually approached them and they said, well, we have been seeing you as some sort of competitor up till now. However, the technology that you provide, that seems to be really interesting. We would like to use that, but not as a 100% digital model, but rather a, a hybrid model in combination with our experience, our expertise that we have in the market for over uh, uh, decades and things like that would you be willing to actually white label your product for our services as well and at that point you know one market is clearly not working as it should be working as it was supposed to work Um, and on the other on the other hand there is like a a big demand for something else you know that's the that's the moment where you realize uh, as a company okay this might be interesting uh, to make a pivot right now Mm -hmm. Uh, and i have to say when, when i look back at it it was 100% 100% the right decision. I mean, we raised our first uh, pre-seed round of one and a half million uh, only two months after our pivot. Uh, our MRR uh, increased or ARR increased from, well, next to zero to, uh, well, to a couple of thousand, which is obviously the first that you that you won as a startup, you know, that first 10K, that first yeah. 100K, that's where you were aiming for, right? Uh, and that went really fast. So in hindsight, yeah, we, we totally made uh, the good decision. Yet, I'm happy that it went the way it went, right? I'm happy that we had to B2C experience first just to learn the things that we now know and that we can implement in, in our B2B or B2B2C proposition, if you will. Mm. I was going to ask you, so, so when you were doing the B2C proposition, did you have any investors at all? Did you have any seed round money then? Um, Yes and no. We had no professional uh, investors. We did a, a crowdfunding campaign, actually, uh, where because we thought, OK, the crowdfunding might actually for a B2C startup, it's a good way to get known to be known to the public. Yet, um, well, it's not like you make a new uh, a new brand of T-shirts, right, or, or a cool drone or something like that, because you can say, OK, our first uh, 100 crowdfunders, they get like a, a sample or a free piece or a, a gift box or whatnot. Well, with insurance, again, it's not that sexy it's not that you can say okay we actually uh, we are willing to pay your premium for a year and they were like yeah "Yeah, i don't really care about that right so uh yeah but that is the only fundraising that we actually uh, that we actually did um we 
well, it went good, but we also burned through that money in I think two or three uh, months. So, well, yeah, it uh, it's not that it, that it well made us run along uh, a long distance. But uh, yeah, we we mainly in the beginning we bootstrapped very long. We did the B two C proposition for about a year, totally bootstrapped. Uh, I think it was for me both as an entrepreneur as on a personal level the most challenging period of my life so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, I'm only 28, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'll reconvene in a couple of years. Uh, but for now, definitely. Um, so yeah, no. But but then shortly after our pivot, we had our first business angels aboard uh, in the in that 1.5 pre-seed rounds, uh, and now recently, uh, about six months ago, we raised. Uh, our real seed round, if you will, or Series A, whatever. it depends what, what country, country you come from, basically. Yeah, so we, exactly, we raised yeah. another 3 million. Uh, so in total, that makes 4.5 million uh, in, uh, well, in Europe, that's uh, that's a Series A, especially in Belgium. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the US, that's basically a juicy uh, juicy seed round. So but yeah, whatever yeah. you want to name it, uh, that's that's what we did. And now we have like our very first uh, VCs on board and they, well, they obviously uh, help us scale to the next level as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. What is the sort of investment scene like in Belgium? Is, is, is there much of one? Obviously, I know that you, you've, got, you've got some investors on board um, and, and, and presumably there's not much of an insure tech scene, but is, is a more broadly a fintech scene? Mm-hmm. There, is, there definitely is a fintech scene. Belgium does have some uh, very interesting, uh, some very interesting fintechs, mostly on the B two B side. So uh, it's not like we can throw around names like uh, like Lemonade or French Insurance, for example. So our brands would be less known. However, there are definitely some good startups. There are some uh, fintech investors as well. We do have some VCs uh, who focus at technology and even one fund uh, who specifically goes only for fintech. So we do have that. However, um, I do feel that Belgium investors are, are uh, usually way more cautious when they, uh, when they uh, work with, uh, with startups. There needs to, like a very early stage seed investor, for example, like, a, like you would find in, in London or in Paris or, or in the US, for example, that would say okay i like your id i basically like your face or i trust your uh, your founder's team so uh, yeah sure i'm going for that uh, that is some something that you wouldn't really find over here so how we try to solve that was actually by uh, uh, uh working with business angels uh, uh working with uh well the crowdfunding campaign as i told you mm-hmm. uh, and looking at a lot of government grants as well uh we uh, i remember that we had an intern in the early days and we actually called him the gold digger because he, his only task was actually look around in europe and see where can we basically find free money right so we started with government grants in belgium then very early on we found that there was a very nice grant for Western European companies uh, in Eastern Europe. So the only thing that we needed over there was like a, was like a base, like a real physical base. So we we basically took a mailbox over there and a seat at the Google campus, like the the, right. the, the Google incubator, and that was basically enough for the government in that specific country. Uh, I'm not going to now name the the, the company uh, as of today, but uh, if you're hearing this and you're interested, feel free to reach out to me over LinkedIn. But in any case, uh, they they gave up to a couple of hundred K just to be active there and bring your technology to that country. But we... Well, we never really had to, we obviously tried to market, right? But it's not like we had to, the real plan to be uh, internationally expanding that early on. But uh, yeah, so that's how we survived in the early days. Uh, but as soon as you you cross that first gap, that first chasm in Belgium, uh, let's say that you get towards uh, 25 to 30K of monthly recurring revenue, then all of a sudden there are a lot of opportunities. And then you can really find some VCs. 
who do have a lot of experience both uh, in Belgium, but also with internationalization, because, well, the thing is, we're a very small country, very small home market. So we are forced as Belgian startups to, to uh, go abroad very, very fast, right? So uh, that's what they really can, can help you with. And, well, they're doing a great job for, uh, for us as well. Mm. What does that mean for talent? Because presumably talent's quite difficult to find in Belgium because there's not the requisite other businesses to sort of go and take that talent from, presumably. Yeah, well, that's a very good question. I do think that there is quite a lot of talent available in uh, in Belgium, actually. Uh, we're based in Ghent for the specific reason that uh, we're close to a, a university over here with a, with a lot of good engineers. So we mainly recruit uh, juniors, especially in the early days. We start with students who uh, start with an internship, then go towards some uh, student job, and then eventually uh, they start full-time in our company, which is a great strategy because these people, they really go for the the startup culture like they i mean these people could probably make, make way more money if they go work for a deloitte or an ey or whatnot uh, but they really want like the startup culture so they're they're interested in that and the moment that they are becoming available in the in the market that they, that they graduate uh, they already did like a couple of months at we group so there is no training needed so all the training happens in like the free internship or, or almost free uh, internship so that's actually a very interesting strategy for uh, for us um, however, as soon as you go towards uh, more senior profiles, if you if you if you want to to hire more senior people, that becomes challenging. And first of all, because Belgium is probably one of the most expensive companies uh, uh, countries to hire when it, when it comes to taxes and uh, and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, well, that's just our luck. <laughs> but uh, but apart from that, uh, yeah, it's 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 harder to find and maybe it's just the industry i wouldn't talk about any industry but but everything that has to do with software development engineering uh, and insurance it's actually it's actually way harder to find uh, whereas if we look at for example our recent fundraising rounds was led by uh, by a parisian by a french uh, fund uh, and the profiles that they actually brought to us senior profiles executive profiles we will like where do you find all these people? You know, like it, it almost feels like you have some sort of a basket in the office with like people ready to be to be incorporated in the companies that you fund, right? But they just find them on the spot. And that's very strange because if you would tell me like, how would you do that in Belgium? Only within your market, you're like, you can only hire the people that, that are available right now. I, I wouldn't even know where to start, honestly. Mm -hmm. does, what does that mean for the future? Does that mean sort of in the longest term, will, will the headquarters remain in Ghent or would you potentially look at moving it in the future, do you think? Well, we try to do as much as we can from uh, from Ghent, especially now since uh, since everything that has to do with Corona, right? I mean, uh, sure. uh, if you if you would have asked me uh, one and a half year ago, I would probably have said, yeah, we're actually looking towards uh, opening an office in Paris, which which was our on our schedule. Uh, by the way, we uh, same for London, for example. We even have officially we have a mailbox uh, in London at uh, at Canary Wharf, and uh, that was also one of our uh, investment strategies. Like just like you <laughs> said, uh, we just needed an office. When we started our business, we just felt like we needed some foothold in London, right? So yeah, because yeah, it was yeah. like we saw it as the, the fintech capital. So we basically rented a mailbox just to be able to say that we had an address in London. But it, well, no, no operations were really done. But well, anyway, that's a, that's another story. Um, so yeah. <laughs> 
I've, I've got the same thing, but unfortunately, I've got this podcast, which is where I constantly tell people I'm in Brighton, but my uh, my mailbox is in London for uh, for my yeah. business, and it's where I'm registered. So I, I, I think I think I've exposed myself to the scam that I really am. But um, I, I am terribly sorry, but I totally hear you. It's just it's so uh, yeah. But, um, but yes, yeah, so in, in any case, when, when we look at the future for now, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's different. You know, I, in the past few months, I always said, like, if I would start a company again in this climate right now, I would probably make it full remote, like, like everybody working from home or, well, from anywhere in the world. Uh, basically, I do like that idea. Uh, so, yeah, if you ask me, like, will there be like physical geographical expansion? I, I really don't don't have the an idea if, if that would be the plan as of today. Um, but it's also not a barrier anymore. You know, we can perfectly hire somebody in, in London or in, in, in Paris or wherever, you know, as long as they are either in the same time zone or they don't care about the time that they are in. You know, from, for all I care, you can be in the U.S., uh, if you're willing to work at night, you know, or talk to our clients during nighttime, well, that's more your problem than mine, basically. I obviously care for your health care, but well, mm -hmm. if you have no problem with that, sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think that it's a barrier where we are based. We do try, however, that if we hire new people, because we did almost, uh, yeah, almost 15 hires, I think, in the past year during uh, during Corona times, wow. Um we actually try to have everything to, to, to get like some sort of a training period where they, uh, well, uh, get acquainted with their colleagues, where if possible, they, uh, they can come to the office. Uh, so, so even if you, if you were living abroad, we recently uh, hired some people in France. They're also going to be here for uh, a couple of weeks uh, just to get acquainted with everything. Um, yeah, they do like it as well because our shops are open in Belgium. So they are very happy that they can do so um, for professional reasons, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Course. But but yeah, um, so we do try to to uh, to create that feeling, right? That that, that company because the company culture is is really important, and that is something that um, that today is is getting the most challenging for startups, right? Because I, I told you earlier, people work at a startup because of the atmosphere, and that is what Corona took away from the startup. Oh. So that is where it where it becomes challenging right now for startups. So for us, it's really like okay, how can we how can we create or recreate this feeling now uh, inside the office? We, we redecorated the entire office to be more of like an, a, a meetup space rather than a working space. Uh, we installed an office gym. Uh, uh, we have digital programs where uh, like a digital cafe where we, where we come together. We call it a digital coffee machine, you know, where people have like breaks in a Discord room. So we try all these different things just to make sure that we can keep that real feeling although you don't need to be connected to a physical place such as the office in Ghent. Mm. that is the thing i think that's the massively challenging thing i mean there's a couple of things i was thinking about when you were talking but i think that the key thing is you know it's being remote's amazing like i i you know like i say i live in brighton on the coast and at lunchtime do i prefer to be here where i can walk to the seafront and have a nice stroll uh, on the beach um, than be in the middle of central London working out of an office and then trying to desperately run around the streets in the rain uh, getting an overpriced sandwich. I love being at home. <laughs> but what I do miss is the camaraderie in the office, the kind of energy of the office. The um, and, and, you know, and I think it's very difficult, as you say, what startups offer is that kind of unique camaraderie, that, that kind of sense of togetherness. And 
it's very difficult. It's, it's the, 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 sort of the COVID situation and the remote working makes that really, really hard. I think most businesses are going to go down the route that you've gone down, make it kind of almost like a clubhouse. It's, you know, everyone won't be in every day, but when they are in, it's kind of as much as you can do to kind of create that sense of togetherness. I think that's, that's really important. Exactly. But I just wanted to talk about kind of talent. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with um, particularly technology talent. Technology talent has always been expensive because it's in demand. So as demand goes up, the price goes up of that talent. But a lot of it's been driven by the demand is in certain locations. So, you know, San Francisco, incredibly expensive place to live. So you have to pay engineers a lot more money. Um, New York's the same. London's the same. Mm-hmm. Now we've kind of removed one of, the, one of the barriers, which is saying, well, you can now hire someone, as you say, as long as they're in the time zone. Exactly. Um, but there becomes a kind of bit of a moral question. So do we as companies now go, well, you don't have to live in San Francisco, London, New York, or Ghent, wherever it's expensive, so we can pay you less? Mm-hmm. Or, um, it's, it's, or, or in a, the other way of looking at it is, I, I also see it from the point of view of, talent should be you know a software engineer is paid what a software engineer is worth and it shouldn't matter where they're working it's down to them so but but i will i think over the fullness of time i think what this will do is kind of it will allow the kind of crazy salary sort of rises we've seen to kind of hopefully sort of taper off a little bit um because if you can go and i don't know live in a beach hut in bali um where your costs are pretty low and and you know, work for a startup in San Francisco, then probably won't need that $300,000 a year that you were currently getting. So I don't know. My opinion about that is that I always felt it uh, uh, rather strange or unfair that the place where you live uh, determines how much you make, right? I agree. Uh, that, is, that is something that I, that I don't fully agree to. Um, that is why, for example, today, obviously, well, I'm, first of all, I'm very, very uh, honored that you place Ghent in the, in the series with London, San Francisco <laughs> and New York. Uh, so, totally just if you ask me, but uh, apart from that, uh, it is, if you look to, to Belgian standards, it is a more expensive place to live um, than, well, than the countryside or whatever other town. Uh, so yeah, it, it would make sense, you know, if you would say purely based on the idea of we pay people uh, based on where they live, that would make us say as a company, okay, we can actually pay you less. However, we decided not to go down that lane, but to invest the the, the money that, that is available right now or that we might not pay in the end um, to invest that in like other means for example um our uh, our pe- in our people obviously so our people they get now um they have access to personal training for example which could be digital or we could be uh, which could be a personal trainer at their home to go and work out uh, outdoors um, so that is a, that is a possibility that that we have uh, we invested uh, in the platform headspace uh, which mm. uh, actually helps people uh, towards uh, well uh, uh, a better mental health basically helps them to learn how to meditate and things like that um, and well uh, as if you would know me better, you would know that I'm a very big skeptic towards all those things. So the fact that we are actually doing that means a lot, I guess. Um, but, I, uh, I saw I saw the way you said it. There was a like, yeah. slight skepticism, but yeah, um, there is definitely skepticism. However, I have to say, I I, I started I started it just to uh, well, if everybody does it, I have to be an example as well, or at least sure. give it a go. Um, and it well, it, I, I, it feels good, you know. It feels better than I expected before. But that's a topic for an entirely different podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, however, yeah. So what I, what I'm trying to say here is, we I think that we as as companies or, or as entrepreneurs, we should like invest the money in other ways in the people, right? And make sure that they actually uh, perform the best that they can perform, that they feel the best that they uh, uh, can feel. And whether they live in in San Francisco or in Bali, uh, living in a penthouse or in a hut, basically uh, that that you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter to me, you know. As as long as they, yeah as they, well, we should, we should honor their value. Right. And, and that's what I'm trying to say over here. No, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the conversation, obviously in my role all the time, uh, I'm presenting people for specific roles. And, and one of the questions that always comes up is, Oh, what are they currently earning? Mm-hmm. And it's not relevant. I mean, luckily in, in certain States of the U S you're not even allowed to ask, but you know, still traditionally you go, right. What is that person earning? What's the role worth? to you as a, as a company, what are you comfortable with, um, with this person's experience, with this person's skill set, and what they're going to value, they're going to add. Um, obviously, kind of, I understand why it comes up, because we don't want to waste anyone's time if we're not in the same ballpark as each other. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the same conversation. It, it's like, if it's worth 100,000 euros to you, that, mm-hmm. that role, then then the role's 100,000 euros. And, you know, right. it, it shouldn't matter whether they choose to live in a cheaper area or not. And I think, because that's the thing, you're sort of dictating then where people work. I mean, mm-hmm. Brighton, you know, where I live is, is, a, is, is an interesting point. It's a very expensive place to live, but there's sort of, there's a, there's a big business community and there's this kind of sense that, oh, we don't play, pay London money. This is a big mm-hmm. conversation. And I said, it's not about London money. It's about what are the alternatives for this talent? Where can this talent go and work that isn't you? And if that talent can go and work in London and the the salaries are 25% higher, Mm -hmm. then you're competing against that. It's competing against the alternative. It's it's irrespective of of where Mm -hmm. you are based. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting how that's going to play out. And and I'm sort of watching because a few companies in San Francisco have said, right, we're not going to be San Francisco based anymore. Therefore, we're going to pay people less. Other companies have just gone, just go work from home, we'll pay you exactly the same. And, and I'm leaning towards that. I think that's the right way to go. Yeah. Um, but I'm conscious of your time. So I'm very, I think we should get towards wrapping things up. But I wanted to ask you kind of, you know, um, where's we group going now in the kind of in the next 12 months? Uh, no more pivots or, uh, or <laughs> at the moment. What's what, what's what's the next twelve months got in store for you? No, definitely no more pivots. I think that about a year ago we really found our uh, our product market fit, right? Um, whereas today we are steadily growing. Uh, Corona helped us a lot. I have to be honest. Uh, I always say uh, like jokingly uh, that I wouldn't be able to plan it better than the way it happens. Uh, obviously, by now I kind of tired of it, but in the beginning uh, it was uh, it was it was really good for us. We grew with about eight hundred percent in the in twenty twenty. Um, so an amazing growth. Um, that is definitely something that we want to continue. And I do know that not every year might be a year, uh, a year like that. It was a very, very strange year, obviously, for everybody, uh, 2020. Uh, but first of all, I think that our growth will be uh, um, horizontally in a way that we are looking towards uh, other markets. Uh, we are now uh, getting more and more customers in the Netherlands, in France. Uh, we are looking at other opportunities as well. So that's obviously very interesting. So uh, geographical, hor- horizontal uh, expansion. But on the other hand, also what I would call vertical expansion in a way that we are, of course, increasing our product, improving our product rather, but uh, (coughs) sorry, 
But thanks to that, thanks to improving our product, we actually make sure that we get new verticals, for example. We started off, like I said, with brokers, with agents. Then we ventured a little bit into the MGA space. Uh, by now, we also have our enterprise product line, which is basically the same technology, but we aim more at insurance carriers or really big brokers, you know, like the Marshes and the Aeons in this world, what, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. Um, and uh, in, a, in a third line, and that is something that I really, really believe in, uh, is what I would would call third-party uh, insurance vendors. For example, like I said, those car dealers, those real estate brokers. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, every everyone who basically sells a product that is uh, or a service that is insurable uh, would be in the market for, for our product. Because what we see right now is they start to use our, our platform to actually uh, help their customers uh, 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 buy insurance because that's really important, right? When you, we, we, you're going towards a world where you want to buy the insurance, the moment that you uh, buy the insured good or you, the good that you want to insure. And at the same time, the broker or the agent or the traditional intermediaries, they want to be there the moment that the need is there, right? They don't want to, uh, I mean, we, we went from, from a world where people had to create needs and then uh, magically uh, uh, bring the solution to the table, right? You know, uh, I mean, back in the day, there was even a saying, uh, that people who were in insurance, they sold fear, right? They sold, they sold the idea yeah, yeah. of, uh, of, of a risk happening, right? Um, we moved from that towards a world where, uh, well, where people, there are, they're more uh, criticizing things. They're more educated in a way that when they are in the market for some sort of product, they do way more research because obviously all the knowledge in the world is available to us. Yes, mm -hmm. yet that, that's the reason why it becomes from creating a need to actually being there when the need is there. So that means that we need an entry for our clients, be it an MGA or a broker or an insurance company uh, inside the, the world of those third-party vendors. So we are connecting our clients, our traditional intermediaries or our traditional carriers with these new type of distributors to make sure that everybody can play their role uh, inside the value chain of insurance. And that insurance is always sold at a moment that it's perfect for the person or the, or, or, or the company or whatnot that is buying the product. So that is really where, where we are going in terms of uh, uh, technological or, or vertical expansion, if you will. Yeah, interesting, um, and uh, and that brings us on to kind of the embedded endurance model, which um, is that is is at least another hour's worth of podcast. So I, um, um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a great space to be in. I, I've talked a few times about um, it's amazing how big the gap is there when you think about you know you're buying a car example is perfect. So you go, I've bought a car a couple of times, and I'm very um, I'm a very impulsive individual, so I've just walked past a nice car and went. I don't have one. I bought one. Um, not because I'm particularly rich. It's just <laughs> I'm that impulsive. I wasn't judging. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I um, uh, but no one's ever sold me insurance, and I find that amazing. And it's like, well, yeah. how how have you got the facility to? Because the finance thing is completely embedded. It, even like a small car lot will sell you some finance to get the car. But it's stunning to me that they that it's quite rare to have the facility to give you some insurance. And I find that you know mind-blowing it's like it's such a it's such an easy win and, and there's so many examples of that um that, that you don't get whereas i think some of the kind of warranty stuff is embedded and and it's almost misplaced like i'm you know whenever i go to an electronics store and i'm buying like a kettle worth like 25 pounds and they're trying to sell me a warranty on it which is like three quid exactly. a month i'm like 
I, I don't care about that warranty. <laughs> exactly. I have to say, it actually, it actually came to me like uh, in, in in the past two years, I, I switched cars and I switched apartments. Um, and like the, the moment, for example, with the real estate broker, I remember that I signed my contract for my new apartment and he was like, okay, well, here is some information on like a, a moving service, you know? So if you, uh, uh, and I was like, yeah, but I'm starting from, from almost zero, you know? So, oh, no problem. We actually have a, a good partnership with a furniture dealer and they can help you and they do interior design and things so they were like explaining all this to me and then uh, in the end he said well the only thing that we now uh, need to like uh, uh, work out before we can give you the keys is you need to uh, send us the the proof of insurance right because you need it needs to be insured before you and i was like almost expecting that they would hand me a partner as well you know i, yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to see what would happen and that was the end of the conversation. So they did nothing. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, if I could, with, with, if our platform could bring uh, a broker to the table over here where, where this real estate broker could, for example, say, uh, well, here is an iPad and uh, just uh, type in some of your information. It's not going to take long because he knows everything about my apartment anyway. He knows uh, the volume of the apartment. He knows the area. He knows all the, everything basically that you need to actually calculate the risk, right? The only thing that he basically uh, needs to know is like, uh, um, well, actually, now I think about it, he knows everything. He even knows my, yeah, yeah, yeah. my birthday and my, so he, he knows everything there is to know. So it would basically only be two clicks and I would be able to have my insurance or get into contacts if you want to have like a step in between with somebody who can help me with that, you know? And that actually real, really makes sense. And it's there for everything. It could be an offline experience like I just described or like you would have with a with a, with a selling a car or what have you. Uh, but it could as well be an online experience, you know, if we have, a, a, say, travel insurance, for example, uh, the moment that you... Interesting, uh, an interesting idea as well to think over okay well travel insurance and i'm not taking it talking like the the traditional luggage insurance that you already get when you use sky scanner or whatnot uh but really for example uh well covid is a good example we 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 had we had a lot of uh uh, uh trips that were canceled obviously so just the idea okay if you make this booking no worries here is like a cancellation uh, insurance product or whatnot like would you be interested in that i'm pretty sure a lot of people would actually buy that now whereas two years ago that wouldn't have happened so yeah being there whether it's an offline flow or in an online flow that's really what our platform uh, what our platform needs to do and where i believe that the market is really going towards yeah, I completely agree. It's an exciting space. Um, but look, Arvid, before we um, before we run out of people's patience on our podcast, I'm, I, I think I'm <laughs> going to wrap it there. But um, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, I'm pleased to see that you guys are sort of trickling back into the office and things are getting back to normal. So um, I look out for more kind of updates from We Group. And um, yeah, I hope to catch up soon. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. Take care. All the best. Bye. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com.
I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.